Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and we have another great guest for you today. Before we move on to that guest, let's just remind you guys, please subscribe, follow the show where you can, and give us all the support you can. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So moving on to today's guest. Today, I'd like to welcome Matt Thornton. Matt Thornton is an American martial artist who founded Straight Blast Gym International, SBGI, in 1992. Thornton was born in Portland, Oregon in 1968 and began studying martial arts at age 11. He trained in various styles, including Taekwondo, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, BJJ, and boxing, but eventually focused on JKD concepts and Jun Fang Gung Fu under Paul Vunak. That's Jeet Kune Do. In 1992, Thornton founded SBGI in Portland, Oregon. The gym's focus is on functional martial arts training with an emphasis on BJJ, kickboxing and wrestling. Over the years, SBGI has grown to include more than 50 affiliated gyms worldwide and has produced numerous successful MMA fighters and BJJ champions such as coach John Kavanaugh, who is also the coach of UFC star Conor McGregor. Thornton is known for his critical views of traditional martial arts and bullshido or fraudulent martial arts practices. He has been outspoken about the importance of scientific testing and evidence-based training methods. He has also been a vocal critic of the Gracie family and their approach to BJJ, arguing that their emphasis on lineage and tradition is detrimental to the growth of the sport. Thornton has authored several books, including Functional Training for Sports and Straight Blast Gym Foundations. He continues to teach and train at SBGI headquarters in Portland and is widely regarded as one of the most influential figures in modern martial arts. Matt Thornton, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Simon. It's really good to have you. And you told me earlier there you're in Portland at the moment. Yes, sir. Portland, Oregon is where I'm lived for the last 30 something years. Portland, Oregon right now. How are things there? Is it a booming state in Oregon at the moment? Are things good with jobs and everything there? Jobs are okay. We've had a spike in um, homicide, a spike in shootings, a spike in crime uh, pretty much all over the, the United States in the wake of the George Floyd protests in the summer of 2019. So here in Portland and shootings have tripled. But um, other than that, everything's good. Okay, that's a shame to hear that. But I suppose what happens is there's kind of like waves of these things, aren't there? Because I, I, I know we hear in the news lots of things from the states, you know, with gun crime and gun control and everything. But I recently saw that video in Chicago where there were people just shooting, you know, gang members killing each other on the streets. And it's it's a shame to see that. But it's kind of in a lot of states and it's very hard for the police to do their work when the criminals have the guns. and you know, you know yourself being involved in martial arts, you do your best to be able to, you know, fend off attackers or to get out of a situation. But it's pretty difficult with guns unless you have pretty intensive training, isn't it? Yeah, that that issue, too, can be a bit counterintuitive. So if, if you haven't really spent a lot of time and dived into it, you, you the immediate conclusion one would draw is guns. But if you separate out about six or seven zip codes. The United States gun violence looks exactly like Canada and most of Europe. So the vast majority of what you're seeing are gang-related shootings, and those are occurring in states and cities that have the strictest gun control. 
So trying to get a hold of a gun in Chicago, buying a gun legally in Chicago, like New York City, is almost impossible. Um, whereas I can, here in Oregon, I can purchase one wherever I want. Or if I'm in Montana or if I'm in Wyoming, there's more guns than there are people in those states, and they'll have maybe one or two homicides a year. You have a place like Chicago, uh, which has very, very strict gun laws, and you'll have 20 homicides a weekend. So it, it's it's not the tool. It's fatherless young men killing fatherless young men over issues related to prestige and identity has nothing really to do with money. Um, much of it might be related to, to drugs, but you're talking about McDonald's wages money. That's the level of money we're talking about. So these are stupid status-based disputes, and that's about more than half of all the murders that occur in the United States and has been for the last 30 years. Yeah, and that's a very interesting concept, as you said, is the whole fatherless children, because I remember a few months ago reading up on the stats on that, and you have this kind of dire situation where, you know, the family unit as it is when it's kind of challenged to the local norm where you have the mother and father. But unfortunately, a lot of people that end up in prison are fatherless. And, you know, there's a lot of single mothers, I suppose, who are making the claim, well, we do a great job. But at the end of the day, the statistics don't lie. And when you have these young men or women, even in that case, ending up on the streets and ending up in prison, it kind of shows you that there is no control. And it's very hard for those mothers to keep control of, especially if there's gangs in the area. It is very difficult. And pointing out the statistical correlation between fatherlessness and just about every type of violent crime that exists from rape to homicide to assault isn't in any way demeaning the the work that single mothers do. In fact, it's the opposite because there are a lot of single mothers who do a great job and explaining how hard it that can be and, and how tough it can be is anything but an insult to those women. It's more of a compliment, but sometimes people tend to see that backwards. Well, I think what's happening now at the moment Everybody that speaks about these kind of issues has to be very careful what they say, because you're always going to offend somebody and somebody's going to take it the wrong way or it's taken out of context or, you know, things are edited to make it look a certain way. And unfortunately, people are afraid to speak these truths. But I think myself, we have to hear them. Sometimes there's uncomfortable truths. And, you know, I know yourself, you're 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 kind of a, a, a skeptic when it comes to lots of stuff. And I'm like that myself. I always call myself a skeptical believer because I want to believe in a lot of things, but you have to kind of see truth in things and you have to look at the facts and you have to kind of say, well, this is the way things are. We can improve them, but you can't get away from reality, can you? No, there's no doubt about it. And I think we're at a point in uh, our culture where we have to stop worrying so much about offending other people and just start having honest conversations about these problems. Or they're never going to get solved. Exactly. Yeah. I think what it is now, I always think, you know, we're supposed to be more tolerant of each other. We're supposed to be more open, whether it's sexuality, race, gender, all of these things. But in actual fact, sometimes when you look at society, there's less tolerance because people can't have free speech. People can't say things. Of course, there's always going to be hate crimes and there's always going to be people who say too much. But, you know, if, if you're anyway educated and then you have like manners in society and you you had a good upbringing or a good education, whether you had a good upbringing or not, you know how to say things with some intelligence without offending people. But there's always going to be somebody offended, isn't there? Yeah, I don't think that's really worth worrying too much about anymore. No. So, Matt, for you going into your career, I want to go back a little bit and kind of look at your life and your involvement in martial arts and everything. For you, 
with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu especially has, I would say, changed your life in so many ways. And, you know, you went through that phase when you were growing up of trying different martial arts and discovering the different things about them, strengths, weaknesses, things you liked, things you didn't like. After all these years now doing, you know, martial arts, do you look at it much different to how you used to look at it? Yeah, I think my view of it has evolved um, over the last 30 years. And so actually, it's a good point for me to bring this up. But two days ago, my book was finally released. So it's The Gift of Violence. And people people can, they can get that from Barnes & Noble or Amazon or any of those places. But I talk about, in that book, I talk about my background growing up. Um, always fascinated with martial arts. But for whatever reason, I was always interested in what works in a fight and what doesn't work. That's what attracted me to training martial arts. Ultimately led me to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu when I realized I'd kind of found, you know, what I was looking for with that. Uh, and this was a couple of years before the first UFC. And then I wound up opening up a school and being pretty much the first Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu slash MMA school here in Oregon, and then became an instructor around the world. People were coming to me. And then, of course, that's how we spread to SBG Ireland under John Cavanaugh and, and SBG UK with um, Carl Tanswell. But it's been an evolution. And, you know, the thing that I'm most known for probably is talking about aliveness. And the basic point with aliveness is when you want to determine whether or not something works, you have to look at the training method. It's about the epistemology. So just like with critical thinking, it's not about the answers you come to that that are that important. What's really important is how you arrived at those answers, having the correct mechanism, which in martial arts is the opponent process. You have to have timing, energy, and motion. And that doesn't mean anybody needs to get hurt. And it doesn't ever mean it needs to be rough. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean full contact. And it doesn't necessarily mean sparring. Sparring and all those things are alive, but aliveness is much more than that. Aliveness is how you drill, how you train. But any martial art that trains with uh, an alive format is going to be functional under the rule set that it's trained for. And so every combat sport in the world uses aliveness, judo, boxing, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Muay Thai, you name it, wrestling. They use it for their own particular part of fighting that they do. And as long as somebody grasps that, then I think they can know where to go and where not to go. They can easily detect bullshit. There's a good portion of my book that's designed to help people see and be able to differentiate between fake martial arts and real martial arts. And um, hopefully, if they're interested in training, then that will eventually lead them to some variation of a combat sport. Obviously, I'm a little bit biased towards Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for many different reasons. I think it's probably the best option for the majority of people, um, men and women. But Honestly, any combat sport will do. Somebody's doing training judo or wrestling or boxing. I think, you know, those are all very valuable. What's important is that training method and understanding the difference between dead pattern training and alive training. And that's a very good point because I know myself, I, I started training in martial arts when I was, I think, 13 or 14. And I was always kind of training at home, doing my own thing. My brother did Taekwondo for a while and I'd see him practicing and I'd copy the moves and I always wanted to start it. And then he stopped doing it. And then like as when I got to my teens, I wanted to do it. So I started studying Shotokan. And, you know, it's like everything. You fall in love with a martial art. and But then as you go through it, you question things. You're like saying, is this effective? Do, do these things work? And my biggest gripe with a lot of martial arts is when it tends to go more towards sport because, you know, you have semi-contact sparring and, and then you're kind of, you, I had this kind of ideology where I, I 
started doing martial arts because I wanted to learn the whole self-defense and, and that real situ- situation. And like you said, that aliveness in the real situation, how it would do. So I found myself getting disillusioned and, and I went on and I got my black belt. But I think when I got my black belt, it, it actually made me more frustrated because I then wanted to try other arts and I wanted to see what worked and what didn't work. And I think this is the journey of being a martial artist. You, As you said, there's a lot of martial arts where not being disrespectful to them, but like you said, they can seem like fake martial arts because they're not effective or some parts are effective, but others aren't. And, you know, like what is the perfect style? It probably depends on the person who's using it and how effective they are. But we've come to realize now that like BJJ and, you know, Krav Maga and some of these styles maybe are more effective in these situations. So I, it's a journey, isn't it? And you, and you have to be disillusioned sometimes to try and move on to the next thing to discover. Yeah, I, th- I think I would just bring people back to the point of training method. So there's an, there's an idea in martial arts that there's a great distinction between sport and street or sport and self-defense. And my experience has been the people that make the biggest deal of that distinction are the ones that are usually the least capable in either environment. You know, functional martial arts, by definition, will be combat sports. And if it's not a sport, it's probably not that functional. And there's a kind of a weird thing that people have in their mind where they'll look at somebody, if you're looking at, you know, professional MMA fighter or just an amateur fighter, and you're thinking, there's no way I would be able to deal with this guy in a cage. What on earth makes someone think that they're going to deal with him in a parking lot? Exactly. Yes. Does you know, the rules don't change. There's no, there's no special mount escape for when you're on asphalt. So being able to control another human body or strike another human body or deal with strikes or being able to free yourself from control, those are the same on the mat as they are in the quote unquote street. So that's why, again, you know, my book is is not a technique book. It's not about martial arts, but I do have one chapter on aliveness and I do talk about what I think people should look for if they train. And my emphasis in talking to people is always find a combat sport. I would rather see somebody in a wrestling gym than probably in a Krav Maga school, to be quite honest with you, because I think that they're going to get more value out of that, out of that wrestling gym. I think what it is, some sports are effective to do them but then as a spectator sport they're not as effective and i know i've i heard before john kavanagh saying you know would bjj ever be in the olympics and he said it's not really a spectator sport so i suppose the ufc has that kind of appeal that you have stand-up fighters mixing you know martial arts kickboxing other styles with bjj so it makes it look it's effective but it also looks the part because Sometimes you can watch UFC fights and they're just totally grappling and maybe they come from Sambo Wrestling or BJJ and sometimes you can think, okay, this is pretty dull, even though it's effective and it works. Some arts, you can do them and you can love doing the techniques. Like you can, some people are really good kicking and these things, but in a, in a combat situation, it's maybe totally not effective. If it's a combat sport, then it's going to be effective within the confines of its particular rule system. So if you're a boxer and you get in a situation where you're going to be exchanging blows with somebody in the street, you're going to be just fine. Where you're going to get in trouble is when you wind up rolling around on the ground. And if you're a wrestler and things go hand on and you want to take someone down or 
throw them or drop them on their head or whatever, you're going to be just fine. But if you get stuck in a position where you have to exchange blows and you've never done any boxing, then you can be in trouble. So this is where the cross training has to come in. And you want to have a balance of stand-up clinch and ground. The main thing about self-defense, though, is most of the time you can walk away from fights. And if you can't, if you can't walk away, you should walk away. And, you know, the, the consequences of not doing so... As you mature, you realize all the consequences that can exist of not doing so. And there's no reason why you would want to engage in that kind of fight. So when would you engage in that kind of fight? Well, you'd engage in that kind of a fight when you couldn't get away. Well, if you can't get away, what are they doing? They're hanging on to you. Or in particular, if we're talking about women, you know, the majority of women are hurt on dates or killed. More than half of women who are murdered are murdered by their husband or significant other. And they're going to be in a situation where a man is trying to physically hold them down. So those kinds of um, scenarios lend themselves really good to Brazilian jiu-jitsu for the average person. But somebody's a judo black belt and you and you get in uh, in in some kind of altercation with them, you know, they're fully capable of taking somebody and dropping them there uh, on their head on the asphalt, just like they are in the gym. So I think the, the really important thing for people to remember, I keep repeating myself, but um, if if somebody only walks away with this one thing from this interview, it should be this. If you're looking for functional martial arts or self-defense, find a sport. And if there's no sport application for what you're doing, I would be very skeptical about it. doesn't mean it is bullshit, but probably is bullshit. And the reason goes back to what we talked about as far as the training methods. Um, sports are a form of meritocracy. And so people care about the results. And anytime we care about the results, we have some form of competition. The training method that we use, the the skill development sets that we use are some form of the opponent process, some form of competition. And when we don't care about the results, that's when we kind of start to move competition aside. Because anytime the results really matter, whether it's you want to get the best doctor for your son who's just been diagnosed with cancer, or you want the best engineer for flying an airplane, or you want the best person to be able to defend yourself in a particular situation, or to be able to cuff somebody if you're a law enforcement professional, whatever it is, the epistemology that's going to determine those best practices is going to be some form of competition. And so that's the beauty of sports is there's an honesty there, right? That doesn't that doesn't often exist in the other martial arts. I do agree with you on that sense. Combat sports in general, probably the more contact they have, the more effective you can be in a street situation. So, for example, if you're wrestling and you're getting used to being taken to the ground and feeling that impact and the same in boxing, I suppose for some martial arts where there's no contact, you know, and they're, they're learning control and they have the techniques. And of course, it's much better than not having the techniques and you have maybe the reflexes and the speed and so on. But it's also that thing about being able to take a hit, isn't it? And I think, for example, in BJJ or wrestling or boxing or, or even kickboxing, if you can take a punch and come back from it, it's also preparing you for that situation where it can happen for real, isn't it? Well, you want to experience the physical pushing and pulling of being in contact with another human being who's resisting against you. That's 100% true. But I have no interest in in figuring out whether or not I can take a punch. And I don't have any of my students do that either. I mean, just the, the brain damage that you can get from that would outweigh the benefit. And there's no reason that any of the training that, that is functional needs to be rough. It never needs to be rough. It ne never needs, like, people have this idea of, of training hard and training to be good and a fight is going to be rough. It's going to be, you know, you're going to get hit and all this. And that's not true. It, it just needs to be alive. 
And if you have a good coach and you have somebody who's smart, you can train in a, a functional martial art like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu um, every day and roll and training against fully resisting opponents every day and not put that much impact on your body and certainly not get any concussions to your head. So, you know, I think functional training is for everybody and um, it has nothing to do, your your ability to defend yourself in any particular altercation really has nothing to do with how rough you've trained. But being able to feel what it feels like to to execute your movements against somebody who's resisting is very important. And again, that's the beauty of sports. That's what a sport is, right? Whether if it's boxing, you're boxing against somebody who's trying to hit, hit you back. If it's judo, you're throwing somebody who's trying to throw you back. If it's jujitsu, you're trying to submit someone who's trying to submit you. If it's MMA, you're trying to do all of it with somebody who's trying to do it with you. If it's Aikido, that's not it. It's somebody who's pretending to attack you, and then you're going to do the movement, and, it, and it's going to be a choreographed response. And no matter how many times you do that choreographed response, there's no like muscle memory or timing that comes. There's nothing that comes from that that's going to equate to an actual fight. Um, you basically just get good at doing choreography. And the moment you go up against somebody who's not engaged in that kind of pattern that's coming at you in a live pattern, you know, you, you will be as much a beginner as somebody that's had no training at all. So in many ways, I think that those kind of martial arts, they're, they're worse than just not functional. They're actually counterproductive because in a lot of times you'll wind up developing habits that if you go to a good functional martial arts coach, they would later have to change. And of course, the worst case is develop a false sense of security about what you can do and not do, and then wind up being in a situation where, you know, you really, sh you really shouldn't have been in. Yeah, you don't really want to have that supreme self-confidence when the techniques maybe don't work or they're not effective. And I think that's for a lot of martial artists as they have that journey through different styles or the, maybe they're in one style for a few years, but they can sometimes find then that, for example, they do BJJ or wrestling or something and they're like, okay, this is pretty effective. You know, you have to just swallow your pride then, don't you? And just continue on that journey and, and you can still train in one if you like the techniques or whatever but you you know that's the good thing and i suppose the ufc has opened up that and mma in particular has shown people the adaptability of mixing the styles yeah if you you know i think if the average person who comes to me living anywhere in the world in the united states or in ireland or the uk and they said you know my my number one reason for training is self-defense i want to be able to defend myself but i'd also like to get in shape and have fun i think you'd be fine with an art like brazilian jiu-jitsu you know, you don't, you don't need to take on makes martial arts. I also think you'd probably be fine with judo or even wrestling. You know, you're going to learn how to be able to defend yourself in those situations. If you want to take it another level and be able to fight at all the different ranges, meaning you want to be able to strike, fight in the clinch, takedowns and not get take and on the ground, then, then of course you have to cross train. And, um, that that's going to lead you ultimately to, to makes martial arts, certainly, or something that looks like makes martial arts, but no matter which combat sport you're training, humility is always going to be involved because failure is an essential part of that process. One of the, one of the distinguishing features of all sports is that you have to fail all the time, no matter what the sport is. You don't succeed all the time at any sport, right? Whether it's darts or anything else, golf. There's failure is a massive part of the whole scenario. And so it is with functional martial arts as well. So you have to become comfortable with failure. Um, and in an art like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that means you have to become comfortable with submitting and losing to people, especially in the beginning, over and over and over again. And, um, and you have to be willing to engage in that process or you won't get any skill. The skill comes as a result of you being 
willing to put yourself in vulnerable positions and defend and learn to defend yourself from vulnerable positions. And if you have somebody that's not willing to make themselves physically vulnerable that way, they actually can't get better. And um, that's one of the other beautiful things about combat sports is they force that on people. You know, when we go back, let's say to, you know, your time in the military and, you know, you were doing some boxing and then you went on to do Jeet Kune Do. When you were in the military itself, did you did you dabble much in martial arts or, you know, was there the kind of the normal routine of learning uh, martial arts, mixed, not mixed martial arts, but different styles within the military at that time? No, the military was pretty backwards at that time. Um, The military, generally speaking, even now. Um, if you're a SEAL Team 6 member or a CAG operator or something like that, the amount of hand-to-hand combat training you're going to get is fairly minimal. I mean, the majority of what you're going to be doing is going to be at the end of a rifle, right? And if it gets past a pistol, then you're in real trouble. So they don't spend an inordinate amount of time on that. But starting around the late 80s, um, functional martial arts started to seep in, in particular Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I give a lot of credit to a gentleman, American by the name of Matt Larson for that, who brought a jiu-jitsu, functional jiu-jitsu curriculum to the army. And then that kind of spread. And then these days, you'd be hard-pressed to find a modern seal who doesn't train brazilian jiu-jitsu so pretty much all of them on the on their own you know are training that an art like that but when i was in there was very little emphasis on i don't you know we maybe had a week of simple hand-to-hand stuff that was relatively um fake you know fake martial arts stuff and and um that's certainly evolved since Okay. And that's interesting. Yeah. Because when you imagine that scenario, you know, of a Navy SEAL or anybody in the military who might, you know, maybe it's a very slim chance of them needing that, you know, man on man combat situation. But you imagine they would would have taken it more seriously over the years in the sense that it would have more of that aliveness. But probably what happened was they're relying so much on the weapons and not having that close combat experience that it just kind of deteriorates at the level, no? Yeah, I just don't think in the in the context of all the different skill sets those guys have to learn, that wasn't really a priority for them. Um, it would be low on the on the totem pole of things that they had to do. I'm not saying it was totally unimportant, but it was it was not a high priority for those guys. Um, that changed. A lot of that changed after the Gulf War and some of the wars that we started to have in the Middle East because a lot of the guys were doing door-to-door searches and or um, kind of detaining people. So when you'd have somebody like a SEAL team member who's likely to get involved in a hand-to-hand situation, it's not when they're raiding bin Laden's compound. It's going to happen when they're, you know, stopping traffic or they're they're going through a particular apartment building or they, they have to restrain and arrest people and detain them for a period of time. And so to be able to control somebody who's doesn't want to be controlled and to be able to keep them pinned and, and um, arrest them and immobilize them became something that a lot of those guys were doing a lot. They were having to do that every day. And so that's where the jujitsu really came in helpful. And I don't want to minimize what they're doing now. You have to remember I'm old. So I was in the, I was in the army 30 plus years ago. Um, The people who are in now, I know from talking to my friends who were in or just recently got out that, especially if you're in special forces or special operations, they have a lot of really good modern hand-to-hand stuff that is drawn directly from you know, functional martial arts and Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular. Right. Okay. And, you know, when you were studying Jeet Kune Do, so obviously, you know, the idea of Jeet Kune Do and Bruce Lee and Dan Inosanto, and it was, I suppose, 
you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, it, it was an evolving martial art where it was kind of incorporating different styles and so on. But as you went through that journey with Jeet Kune Do, did you find that it gave you what you needed at that time? Like, did you find that you felt the techniques worked or how did you feel about it? Uh, it was a mix. So, you know, I became a little disillusioned. I talk about that in the book. I became disillusioned with the Jeet community in general and what they were doing. There were parts of it that were very functional and those were the parts that attracted me. So, you know, Bruce Lee had a, a utilitarian philosophy that he, his famous quote, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own, which is a quote from Mount Tung that he took and liked. But it's a sensible quote if you're talking about cross training. And so um, I was interested in boxing and kickboxing and I wanted to learn and I knew I had to learn to fight at all ranges. So here you have an art where the striking they were doing was boxing and kickboxing. So that checked one of the boxes and they talked about being able to fight at all different ranges. So that checked my other box. So that's what had me gravitate towards Jikundo. And I started to teach the, a lot of the boxing aspect of it. I was boxing five days a week at the time at a boxing gym as well. I was doing Muay Thai and those parts I found very interesting and functional and fun. But then they would blend it in with very silly things from Filipino martial arts, weapons stuff that'll get you killed, Penjok Silat, a whole bunch of bullshit. There's just no, you know, there's no other way to say it. And many of them would not differentiate. So they would go back from a functional martial art and then slip in some nonsense. And the vast majority of training they were doing was dead pattern. So it was what they call one and two step sparring, where the person pretends to punch and they'd lock their arm out and you do some kind of combination that ends in a foot sweep and looks really cool. It really has almost no application to an angry, aggressive person who's just going to try and hit you. And so I became really disillusioned with that. And about the time I started to become disillusioned with that whole thing, um, I happened to run into Gracie Jiu-Jitsu through Fabio Santos and Hicks and Gracie. And so that was the perfect timing for me. And so I kind of broke off from Jeet Kune Do and opened up my own place and basically just gave up, just stopped teaching all the things that I knew were ridiculous and focused on just the stuff that worked for us at the time. In the beginning, that was some boxing and kickboxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which I was and still am pretty, pretty obsessed with. And then a few years later, a gentleman by the name of Randy Couture walked through my door and Randy was a um, MMA champion. He had just won a UFC as an alternate, and he was a Greco-Roman wrestler. And so Randy brought to me Greco-Roman, and that was the missing piece that we had. That was the standing clinch part that I didn't have. They're, the Greco-Roman guys, in my opinion, are better at clinch than anybody else in the world because that's what that particular sport focuses on. And so that kind of gave us the missing pieces. So now we had stand-up, we had clinch, and we had ground, and we had the complete curriculum for SBG, and then it's um, evolved in depth, not width, but depth since then. It's something that always interested me before I got into martial arts. I remember I bought a book. I think I still have it somewhere. It was a book on jiu-jitsu, but Japanese jiu-jitsu, you know, and it kind of fascinated me, the locks and so on, all, you know, the manipulation of the body. But I remember at the time I used to be, I didn't have someone to train with and I'd be just kind of messing with my wrists and just seeing, and I was very curious about it, but I didn't have any kind of outlet. And then I got into karate because there was no jujitsu around. There was no even Japanese jujitsu. I was living in Galway city in Ireland. There was no Japanese jujitsu around, but what kind of a question that I always wonder is 
for Japanese jiu-jitsu practitioners who over the last few decades now who have gotten more into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I know for example one person I trained with for a while was Josie Murray in Donegal and I went to a few courses where Carly Gracie came over I was living in Donegal it was quite interesting the fact that the Japanese practitioners or the European practitioners who were practicing Japanese jiu-jitsu how they started to change to the more the floor techniques so my question is, do you think that the high-level Japanese jiu-jitsu practitioners can function the same way as, the, let's say, BJJ practitioners, or they don't have that ground control? No, they can't. And it's not just because they don't have the ground control. It's because it's not a sport. So traditional Japanese jiu-jitsu is more or less a traditional martial art. And um, it's more along the lines of Aikido, which is a fantasy-based art, kind of a make-believe art. Um, and... The functional part of jujitsu became judo. And you got to remember that back when we go, if we go back to the turn of the 20th, the beginning of the 20th century, there wasn't a real a difference between judo and jujitsu. They're basically two of the same things. You had Kano called what he did judo and was taking jujitsu and turning it into a, a sport format. And he was training with aliveness and his guys were killing everybody um, in Japan. They were winning all the challenge matches from the Kodokan. And then he sent his wrestlers out around the world and they started to travel around the world and beat everybody too. Um, the only place they really ran into trouble was when they came up against Western wrestlers and catch wrestlers here in the United States and different parts of Europe um, who had a similar model. And then of course, judo continued to evolve more towards emphasis on the takedowns with minimal amount of time allowed on the ground. So the sport has evolved to those kind of parameters, whereas the art, the part of jujitsu that traveled to Brazil went the opposite direction. It was two guys are going to fight. There's not going to be any time limits. We're not going to worry about weight classes and nobody's going to go break it up. So it could conceivably stay on the ground for two hours until somebody submits. And that's the way we're going to do it. And so in that particular Petri dish of Brazil, you, the art of Gracie jujitsu evolved. But the difference now between Brazilian jiu-jitsu and Gracie jiu-jitsu isn't just the fact that Gracie jiu-jitsu spends more time on the ground. Uh, the difference is that training method. Japanese jiu-jitsu, by and large, is taught through dead pattern forms and choreography and people who cooperate with you. There's no sporting application to it, you know, and so that is that's why it's kind of it, it very quickly, no matter what the art is, you could do this. You could kill Brazilian jiu-jitsu the same way. Very quickly, if you take the sporting aspect out of a martial art and you take away competition and you try just to codify the techniques, you will have in less than a generation a fake martial art. You will have a dead pattern martial art. And you'll have a bunch of people who may kind of recognize the movements and even have names for the movements, but they're incapable of doing them against resisting people. And that is the due to the singular singular important point of that training method, aliveness. That's what it all comes down to. It makes sense, you know, when you think about it, because a lot of those early martial arts, even Japanese martial arts or the Greco-Roman wrestling, when they were used in the context like of it, whether it be samurai or whatever context of, of battle, you know, they were effective because they probably trained in a situation where they had that aliveness, where there were real attacks, there was no choreography. But over time, it evolved. And as you said, if you take the sport element out or the competition element, it kind of becomes more of a dance, doesn't it? Right, right. 
Exactly. You believe a lot in the scientific and evidence-based approaches to training. So let's talk about that for a minute. So when you kind of started your training in your own gym and, and you mentioned there when Randy Couture came in and he that was the missing link. So did you go through a long period where you were testing the techniques that you had learned even in BJJ and saying, okay, that doesn't work. We change that or we just get rid of that. How did you kind of approach these scientifically? Well, you, you want to look at things as much as possible in a physical sense um, and, and take away as much as possible the cultural affectations of what you're dealing with. So for example, if I said to you, Simon, we're going to study Canadian geometry, I would think right away, you'd be like, what? Canadian geometry, it doesn't make any sense, but it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any more sense to have a Brazilian choke, you know, a choke is a choke, a throw is a throw, a takedown is a takedown. So what you're looking at when you look at a martial arts scientifically is you're looking at the body mechanics and you're looking at the training method. And there was nothing that I found I had to throw out uh, that I learned from my coaches of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So the art is not not a lot of fat in, in the at least in the fundamentals. If you focus on the fundamentals of combat sports, which is what SBG does, there's you're there's nothing in there that's gonna be that's not gonna work. You know, it's all solid material, just like the fundamentals of boxing will always work. The fundamentals of wrestling will always work. So um but as far as the other stuff, the stuff that we pulled from Jeet Kundo and from Filipino martial arts and stuff like that, yeah, like we immediately threw out like ninety-five percent of it. So it's just it was all patterns and clicking sticks together and all the trapping hands and the wing chun stuff and all that stuff, we just kind of threw it away. Um and I just don't have the time in the day either. I mean, I don't have enough time in in my life to be able to master the art of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu the way I would like, let alone clinch and striking. You know, my clinch and my striking are always taking a distant back seat to my love of Jiu-Jitsu because I only I have a family and I've got a job and I only have so many hours in the day. And there's only at my age so many hours I can train a week. Why would I want to waste any of that on bullshit martial arts it just doesn't make any sense it doesn't make any sense from a human perspective it doesn't make any sense from a time perspective it makes sense what you say because you know you have to look at things in a a way that works for you and in any kind of world or any society people get rid of things they don't need so looking back on traditional martial arts and traditional combat sports you know there's been that kind of conservative thing where you know, you're maintaining tradition and you're doing these things. And I know you have this term bullshido, but it, it's true in some respects because it's good. I mean, if you want to maintain them for the sake of etiquette and so on, but then you also have to look at the practical aspect. Do you have the time? You know, can you learn more techniques in a shorter amount of time if you take out the techniques that don't work? So there's a rational way to look at it too, isn't there? Yeah. And I have no problem with somebody that's training a particular martial art for cultural reasons, they want to maintain, you know, like flower arranging. They're they're doing Aikido for the same reason that they would do some kind of cultural Japanese dance. That's fine. The problem you're going to run into with with those kind of situations is the instructors who make those claims rarely say the same thing to the students. So when you walk in an Aikido gym, you know, if you're talking to an Aikido instructor, he might tell you, "Yeah, no, I don't really train for fighting. You know, we're this is just an art." But is that what he lets his students know when they come in? This is not really what you want to use if you have to defend yourself in the street. They don't usually say that. So there's always a bit of duplicity and dishonesty there as well. So I think it's healthier for people just to focus on what's true 
both psychologically and physically. You are correct there because I think that has been the thing for a lot of people. They go in and for a lot of people, maybe they go in with the idea that they can learn some you know, techniques and self-defense and to improve their confidence and to feel better about themselves. But maybe sometimes they are being sold a lie because, you know, it's like the golden goose. You don't really want to divulge all the secrets. And we've seen over the years so many of these choreographed exhibitions and so on. And unfortunately, you know, you look at them and go, well, okay, that doesn't look like it works and it's a dance. And I remember myself doing karate, you know, you do the kata. And, you know, you knew you were practicing the techniques of these things, but you just couldn't imagine that that would work in any way. So you were kind of really only doing it for the traditional reason of keeping the arts going alive. So, but then you can get sick of this too. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Let's move on then just talking about coaching then. You mentioned there with Randy Couture and with John Cavanaugh and people like this. What do you see as the key factors like that contribute to success in the world of professional fighting? The training approach for professional fighters versus, let's say, amateurs or people who are just coming as hobbyists to the gym. What's the differences there in your training? Well, in the beginning, there's not going to be that many differences. In the beginning, you, if you're coming without any training at all, you first have to start to learn the fundamentals of the delivery system, whether of stand-up, clinch, or ground. So if you're an MMA fighter, you have to learn the fundamentals of striking and footwork and distance and timing. And then you have to learn, you know, your sprawling and your clinch and cage work and pummeling and then your fundamental no-gi grappling on the ground. And um, being able to pass that information along to anybody is the skill is a skill set of being a good teacher being able to break down the material to what's most important be able to articulate it and then put people through a live drills so um, they can get good and after a couple of years then someone starts to develop some skill and they decide hey I would like to become an amateur fighter or eventually they become a professional fighter then you're dealing with a kind of a, a whole other set of coaching skills and those coaches for example John and coaches that are working with more professional fighters, they have to focus a lot more uh, on the individual fighter and what that particular fighter needs. And every fighter will be a little bit different, how that fighter operates, how, what language you can use with them that's going to be the most effective, their their psychology of what it takes to get them in and to get the best um, the best out of them during a practice. All those things become important, um, knowing what to focus on and what not to focus on with a particular athlete. So that there's as much of an art as it is a science, and it's a little bit different as they go through the ranks. And there's some people who are very good at, at one and can't really do the other quite quite well, and then there are other people who are very brilliant at one of them. And that's so it just depends on, on where you're at in that spectrum. But a good coach should be able to work with just about anybody. I want to move on to your book, talk a little about your book and go into a little detail with it. But just before I do, with the aliveness, for you, are there any like criticisms or misconceptions about the aliveness approach that you'd like to talk about? Have you heard other people who have criticized it and what have they said? Oh, sure. I've been hearing the same excuses and arguments as it relates to aliveness for 30 years. So I, uh, I, I address them in the book kind of one by one. There's never been a good one. Um, but the things that you'll hear are uh, alive training is for young people. It's too rough. It's, you know, it's not, uh, it's a sport and in the street, there's no rules. And so you don't want to do sport and, you know, uh, there's going to be multiple opponents or what if they have a knife or what if they have a weapon and all these things are really, 
relatively simple to talk about. You know, if we're talking about weapons like knives and firearms and things like that, you're not going to use an inferior training method for a more serious event. So training with aliveness becomes even more important when I'm talking to dealing with law enforcement or dealing with people who are training strictly for self-defense because the stakes are much higher. You don't all of a sudden switch to dead pattern training because you're going to defend yourself, have to defend yourself against two or three people. It's still alive. So no matter what the situation, the training method that you're going to come back to has to be some form of aliveness. So there is no rational argument against training that way. And I try and make that pretty clear in the book. And yeah, as far as new arguments, I haven't heard a new argument probably in 20 years. It's always the same stuff. And it will always be the same stuff. You know, sometimes people ask me if I think it'll ever change or there will always be fake martial arts with us for the same reason that we have astrology. You know, astronomy has been around for quite a while now and you still have astrology and there's still going to be people that are going to gravitate towards astrology. And we've, you know, we've got great oncologists and you're still going to have people that are going to want crystals and you have functional martial arts and there's still people who are going to want to train in a fantasy based system because they're not motivated by the same things. So there's always going to be that out there. And I think we just have to, you know, help people explain things to people as best we can and leave the route open for them so that they know where to go. And if they're interested in training realistically, you know, the information's out there for how to do it. Yes. And you mentioned there earlier, you know, we just briefly touched on it, but let's say the art of Krav Maga. So with Krav Maga, it kind of has this appearance of mixture of martial arts, but it has that more real feel. So do you think that when it comes to, let's say, BJJ, you know, seems to be something that goes to the ground and it's a more real situation. What do you think then are the negative aspects, let's say, of Krav Maga? You think it's not real or that these movements, that the techniques they train for are too choreographed or it's that dead pattern again? At the end of the day, it comes down to the fundamentals of stand-up clinching ground. And your ability to execute those basic fundamentals, stand-up clinching ground, transcends environment. So circumstances will dictate tactics. And plans will change upon circumstance. But the core root skills that you develop in stand-up clinching ground, you carry those with you wherever you go. So I'll give you one basic story about Krav Maga to, to illustrate my point. But Many times over the years, I've had students come from out of town. We always have people from visiting from around the world here in Oregon, visiting the gym. And what would happen is they would be getting ready to take their Krav Maga instructor's test. And to take their instructor's test, get their certification in it, they'd have to go down to L.A. somewhere and go through this test. And they would come up here. I've had this happen a couple of times. They'd come up to the gym to train with me, prepare for it. And so I would ask them what the basic parameters of the test were, what they were doing. And it was basically some modified scenario training related to, you know, some kind of full contact in different scenarios with certain equipment on. And I'd say to this person, well, how long have you been training Krav, you know, and oh, I've been training three or four years. Okay. All right. And so the first thing I'm going to do is I'm just going to have you move around a little bit. And I'd get one of my very beginning MMA athletes, let's say somebody who's got maybe a less than a year of boxing. And I would have them go in the cage just to watch how they could strike. And their striking would generally be terrible. And I'd say, okay, let's see how you can do on the ground. And I'd put them up against a three-stripe white belt. Okay, which is somebody that's been at my gym maybe for nine months and they would clean the mat with these guys like they, they, they would be in. These guys were incapable of defending themselves against a blue belt, a three stripe white belt, let, let alone a blue belt. So at a certain point, you have to ask, like, what functional delivery systems have these guys been mastering over the last three or four years? And basically what you get is bad MMA. So it's like sloppy MMA. 
And so I would just go back and focus on the fundamentals with these guys, good basic fundamental striking skills, good basic Brazilian jiu-jitsu survival skills and, and clinch skills, train them for a week, send it back down. And to a person, always they would ace their test. And then they would write me back and thank me. And I'm happy and I'm glad they aced their test, but it left me wondering, like, why are you training that? You come up to my place for a week. You're getting killed by people who have less than like nine months of training. You work with us for a little bit. You go back and ace your test. Doesn't that kind of tell you something about what really makes good fighters? What makes good fighters is people who train solid fundamentals and stand up clinching ground in a live format. Got nothing to do with wearing camo pants or being an Israeli combat force or talking about poking people's eyeballs or carrying a knife or any of that bullshit. And the more military things that get attached to something, the more people try and claim it's like SEAL training or Israeli commando training, the, the more people should be wary of that kind of stuff because in general, those things should be red flags. Because they're kind of selling a fantasy then as well, aren't they? And I mean, I've met some Krav Maga practitioners and I think sometimes with some martial arts, it's as good as the proponent of the art. But I do understand what you mean by what's happening nowadays that there's a lot of martial arts and mixed martial arts in general that are showing the weaknesses in other martial arts, you know, because it's a more effective style. The people are learning the better techniques and the more functioning techniques in a shorter period of time. So I can imagine for a lot of those people who are going for their, you know, black belts in Krav Maga or their instructor test, they meet your blue belt or your two stripe or three stripe belt. They get a shock because they're like, how does this guy know so much how can he take me down but it's a functioning effective martial art against something that still has a lot of weak techniques in it doesn't it it's about the training method if there's a krav maga guy out there who's legitimately good on the ground by definition he's going to be able to deal with good brazilian jiu-jitsu people be able to go back and forth with them or at least be able to hold his own with them uh, if they exist it's because they've trained brazilian jiu-jitsu you know, if there's a really good grob guy who's got great striking, who can hold their own and be able to defend themselves and at least survive in the cage or in the ring against a decent Muay Thai or amateur boxer, it's because they've got that amateur boxing or Muay Thai. And so at a certain point, you have to ask, why not focus on the amateur boxing and the Muay Thai and the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? So it just brings you full circle back to the original question. Yeah. And the other thing as well, I think with BJJ, you know, it focuses a lot on the ground and we've seen BJJ practitioners take karate guys, boxers to the ground. But I suppose in a, a well-rounded individual, it mightn't go to the ground, you know, because you have to have those reflexes like a boxer or a good striker would have that maybe it doesn't go to the ground. They can end it before. But you always have that 50-50 chance that that guy sweeps your leg or, or pulls your leg and takes you down. And then when you're on the ground, it's unknown territory, isn't it? Well, I don't know about 50-50 chance, but I will tell you this. The hardest people in the world to take down in the in a fight to get to the ground are wrestlers. So if you want to if you want to be good at being able to stay on your feet, you need to go train with wrestlers. Uh, the hardest people to hold down on the ground are Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu athletes and wrestlers because that's what they practice against. So um, if you if you want to be able to control space, if you want to be able to keep a fight standing or take a fight to the ground, then you need to focus on wrestling. And that's where you go for that skill set. You go to wrestling. And that's kind of the great irony of people talking about, well, you don't want to be in a fight on the ground. First of all, one of the reasons why it's called a fight is because you don't always get to choose where it goes. Um, but second of all, the, sh the, the easiest and most surefire way to make sure that you do wind up on the ground in a fight is to not know anything about how to fight on the ground in a fight. You know, the hardest people in the world to deal with in that particular environment are the people who spend every day there. 
that's where they're going to try and bring you into deep water, isn't it? Because if you get a guy who's who trains, you know, primarily on the ground or in that situation, and he faces somebody who's a striker, he's going to want to bring that to the ground and control it and hopefully not do any damage because he has some discipline and control. But you never know, do you? Yeah, you never know who has what. That's for sure. Exactly. Yeah. Let's look at your book then, The Gift of Violence. So it's a very interesting book. And just looking at some parts of it, I mean, this thing, violence is an inherent part of human nature. So that's a very true statement because like when we look around us in the animal kingdom, in the human world, violence is very much a part of our lives. And we can try to run away from it, but sometimes you can't avoid it, can you? No, that's absolutely right. Uh, We can't always choose to remain nonviolent. I wish we could, but we can't. Do you think that people have a false reality about violent situations as, as regards, like if it's a street fight or if it's an attack or things? Do you think people don't realize the full extent of how violent situations can get? Oh, yeah. I think that's very common. And part of that is is a sign of our evolution. I mean, you know, society, each succeeding generation you go back in time tends to get a little more violent than the one that comes after and so if we want to, if we go back to the 19th century or the 18th century or the 17th century, it's going to get more and more violent. The most violent time in the United States, um, as far as homicides and killing each other was prior to the arrival of the Europeans. A lot of the Native American tribes we have were in a state of constant. And so each succeeding generation, we get a little bit better at, um, you know, we create police forces, we have sub, uh, civilization, we have the enlightenment, we have all these different things that take away people further and further from violence. But then you also have a segment of the population that is remains somehow naive and disconnected from that part of themselves. And they're um, unaware of how dangerous situations can be. That particular kind of ignorance manifests itself most obviously, oftentimes in situations where police officers wind up having to shoot somebody. And people will not understand why, or they'll look at it and they'll say, oh, he just had a knife. And they have no idea how dangerous a human with a knife can be. Uh, and they have, you know, they have these misconceptions about shooting him in the leg or being able to disarm him or something. And people just don't understand violence. And so in that sense, it can lead to bad public policy, which can be dangerous and make it, uh, which is one of the things that's happened in the United States recently. So that's one good reason why it's important to educate people about violence. But the other thing is, um, Interpersonal violence, there's usually four times as many deaths every year through interpersonal violence than there is from all the wars around the world every year. So it's about a half a million people every year are murdered around the world. You can't always choose whether or not you're going to be the potential next victim. So it's a very risky proposition to farm out your well-being to a third party who may or may not be there when... um, the time comes and you have to defend yourself for those that you, those that you love. So I actually think we have an obligation to defend ourselves and to defend the people who are in our in our care. And learning how to do that is part of being a responsible adult. You talk about that in the book, the psychology of violence, like where that functional fitness training and, and physical training is a big part of helping keep yourself alive. And it's a very important thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's very important. And, you know, somebody who's truly interested in self-defense is also going to be focused on physical fitness, you know, because the vast majority of us are going to die from cancer and heart disease and diabetes and other preventable causes. Not, We're not going to be murdered. And um, the beautiful thing about training in combat sports is not only are you preparing yourself best to be able to deal against a violent predator if you run into one, 
But the actual process of preparing yourself for that is helping you live healthier, longer life, keeping you, you know, living a life more like an athlete. And that's going to help cut down on the biggest killers like heart disease, cardiovascular, all the, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, if, if I see someone who tells me that they're really interested in self-defense, but they're like 60 pounds overweight and they're drinking a bunch of sugary soda or they're driving without their seatbelt on or whatever it is, then I know for sure that that particular person isn't sincere about self-defense. What they're worried about is being humiliated, but they're not worried about going home to their family or living longer. Because if they were worried about living longer or going home to their family, they would diet, exercise, and proportion their, their risk to reality itself. One thing that there that I want to address as well is, you know, you have a, a chapter in the book or a section in the book about a calm and focused mindset. I've talked about this with some people in the past where the good thing I think about martial arts training, whichever style you do, and as we said, some more effective than others. But I think the good thing that it delivers to people or it helps them in this thing is that awareness. So we spoke about aliveness, but awareness is a big thing too. So, I mean, if you are aware of your surroundings and you say to yourself, okay, I'm not going to go that way or I'm not going to do this, but you're watching you. A lot of people walk through cities with their head down and they're not aware of anything. And I think the people that have some kind of training have that self-awareness to know, don't put yourself in that situation. Or if I need to run from that situation, get out of there. Does that tie into that calm and focused mindset? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the vast majority, just so people understand the book, the book is not about martial arts. Um, I talk a little bit about martial arts journey. I talk about fantasy-based martial arts and how to distinguish functional martial arts from fantasy-based martial arts. But the majority of the book is about self-defense knowledge that anyone can use that will help keep you safe. And then at the end, if someone wants to actually engage in physical training, I provide some recommendations for them of what to look for. But so the majority of the book is filled with that kind of information. And you basically have two sources for being able to figure that kind of stuff out. So the first one's going to be innate. It's going to be your primal instincts, our evolved instincts, which are far stronger and smarter than people have any idea um, about because, you know, we're an unbroken line of success from each generation going back. Each one of our ancestors lived long enough to procreate and have another ancestor, which is pretty amazing. And most, most creatures don't do that. And part and parcel of being able to do that was being able to detect predators in your midst, being able to defend yourself against predators, avoid predators, and sometimes kill predators. And your ancestors were all very good at all of those things. And you have those things within you. And uh, so learning how to listen to those instincts is really important. It's not that those instincts no longer exist in people. What it is, is that those instincts exist in people, but they don't listen to them anymore or they override them or they don't understand their importance when they arise. And then you wind up being in a situation that has advanced far beyond what it should have because you didn't pay attention to your own primal instincts. So that's one aspect of it, teaching people to recognize their own instincts and listen to them and why that's so important. And then another aspect is not innate, but educated, an educated awareness about, uh, you know, situational awareness and what to look for, pre-incident indicators and things to look for around you um, when there are predators about or bad situations about or things just don't look right. What to look for, what, you know, what are some of the signs and things of people approaching you and what you should be aware of and where you should go and not go, that kind of thing. So it's a combination of that education, which anybody can go through. And that's a big portion of what the book's about and learning to listen to your own internal voice, that internal instincts. And when you put those two things together, it's pretty powerful. And if you put those two things together and you're 
a mature person living a relatively mature life, I think the odds of you ever having to get into a hand-to-hand encounter with somebody go down dramatically. It brings me back to that saying, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war, isn't it? You know, even if you never have to use that training, it's always good for your confidence and your mind to have that knowledge, isn't it? That's right. So, you know, training, teaching good people to be dangerous to bad people doesn't just make good people dangerous to bad people, it also makes better people. So that's one of the nice side benefits of training functional martial arts. It can help people become happier, more confident, kinder nicer people um, over the over the long term from training it. Yes, for sure. You know, looking back then, you know, you trained with John Kavanaugh. Once you started training more with Europeans, do you see differences how, let's say, European Brazilian jiu-jitsu is as opposed to other countries or America? Do you notice differences in how the lineage of it is developing? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I would say in some ways. So it's just the way Brazilian jiu-jitsu, Gracie jiu-jitsu spread. It kind of went from Brazil to Southern California. And the mecca of jiu-jitsu was kind of in Southern California. And then you had a branch in New York with Henzo um, and a few guys that went off to Florida. And then now... Um, 2023, you'd be hard pressed to find any city in the United States that doesn't have a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school and probably a fairly well-known Brazilian in it if it's a sizable city that's teaching. So it's everywhere now, uh, but that took a while. And I think Europe in general is just a little bit behind that curve. So it came to the United States through LA first, and then it started to spread over to the UK and Ireland and places like that. And I think John is actually the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in Ireland. Could be. Yes, that's true. Yes. He's one of the, you know, the very first guys there. So in that sense, it's just a, they're, the athletes are just as good as the Americans and certainly just as good as the Brazilians these days. I just think overall, maybe in terms of the industry itself, just a little bit behind the States, just because of uh, the way the art spread. And the level, the, the amount of instructors. Yeah. And that's just the other thing is if like, uh, if you're in a place like Southern California, there's just so much competition and so many um, opportunities to compete and things to do where, you know, there wasn't there wasn't always that that many in Ireland and the UK. Although, again, I know that's changing and there's lots of stuff going on now. So and it's quite interesting because, you know, when you even look at the lineage of the Gracies themselves and I know they probably all have different stories about. Who brought it first? I know there's a Carly Gracie was supposedly brought it to the U.S. military first and so on. But I I imagine as time goes on, there's lots of conflicting stories about the lineage and who was training first in the U.S. and so on, because they're such a big family now that they all have these different generations, don't they? I think, you know, at the end of the day, we have to give a certain amount of credit to Horian Gracie. So, you know, he was the one that really publicized Gracie Jiu Jitsu basically with his uh, challenge match that he put out in playboy magazine and uh and then the choreography he did for a lethal weapon so he was you know working in la and and cleaning up and working as a janitor and doing what he needed to do um to promote the art and then of course he started the ufc and so in the beginning i think a lot of credit has to go to horian for advancing the art at least bringing the seeds of the art here to the united states and then of course it spread rapidly and now you've got as you said, you know, pretty much every member of the family is one portion of America or another at various times of the year. 
Well, Matt, it's been really interesting to talk to you. And, and, you know, is there anything else about the book that we haven't skipped over? I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's lots and, and it's going to be a really interesting read for people. But is there anything else you want to tell us about the book? No, I appreciate you having me on, Simon. I just encourage everybody to pick up a copy. It makes a great gift. <laughs> I don't know about the shipping. I think it's shipping now in the, in the UK and Ireland, but you guys can check on Amazon there. The last question then for you, you know, do you have future goals for yourself or you know is there are there things that you have always wanted to try but maybe have never done it yet have you any aspirations for the near future uh you know my main goals these days is trying to spend as much time with my kids and my family as possible so that's that's going to continue to be my driving force i may or may not release another book one that's more related to physical training, depending on how well this one sells. But uh, I definitely wanted to get this book out into the marketplace. I'll probably continue writing in one form or another of various things, but maybe not always about violence. Um, but yeah, no, I'm I'm pretty content these days just to spend as much time as I can with my kids. Brilliant. There's so much more we could talk about. I think it would be nice for you to come on the show again another time and we can look into that whole skeptic side because that's also for me very interesting how people think or how they perceive things. And that's a whole other subject, but it's an interesting one too, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be happy to come on anytime, Simon. And for anybody that's listening, if you guys get the book and any questions come up, you always feel free to reach out to me via email. I think I'm pretty easy to get a hold of there on uh, on the internet. And I, I usually try and respond to everybody personally when I get a chance. Thank you very much, Matt, for taking the time. If anybody obviously would also maybe like to visit your gyms, if you know, wherever they are and all the SBG gyms. So we appreciate you coming on and thank you for telling us about everything you've done so far and want to commend you for doing a great job and all the best for the future. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Matt Thornton, everybody. Thanks, bud. Okay. Thank you very much, Matt Thornton. That was a real pleasure to talk to you and it's great to delve into your experience and career with martial arts and BJJ in particular, but all of the other styles. Very interesting to hear your concepts and your ideas about how you look at things. And I think there's something in there for everybody and with your books and your blogs and your videos and everything, I think it's very educational and uh, we want to commend you for doing the great work you've done so far and keep it up. You know, you're a great martial artist and uh, you've given back a lot to the community. So we want to say thank you very much for that and it was a pleasure to have you on the show and thank you the listener for being here it's great to have you here as usual and we hope you're enjoying the content and the guests and we look forward to seeing you on the next show so from me your host simon k until the next time look after yourself your friends your family and the people you love take care bye bye